Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Eaton Dunkelberger, the CEO and president of the Community Foundation of Northern Nevada. Eaton is a transformative and heart-centered leader whose good work is really helping improve the lives of many people across our community. The work of the Community Foundation really amplifies donors and really addresses the key intractable problems in our community. I learned so much more about the Community Foundation than I did going in, and I think if you had any interest in learning about philanthropy or the role of Community Foundation, then you'll really enjoy this podcast. He's a fun guy, and we have a great conversation. So hope you enjoy the show, and on with the podcast. Eaton, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to see you, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm just really looking forward to learning more about all the great work you're doing. I mean, you know, you and I have known each other for, oh, not quite a decade, but for a while now. And I've just always been inspired by your leadership and your commitment to service. And just really honored to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Doug. Really glad to be here. So currently, you're the CEO and president of the Community Foundation of Northern Nevada. Why don't you give us a little bit of background, your personal history on how you got here? Yeah, great. I started my career with a college scholarship, ROTC, to college, essentially, and joined the Marine Corps. And I think the Marine Corps really spoiled me to having jobs that felt like they mattered. You know, I mean, there was a lot of meat there. And so that job took me to Iraq. And after leaving Iraq in 2003, I really felt the need to be part of the solution of kind of nation building or post-conflict reconstruction. And so I ended up starting two startup companies in Afghanistan. And my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time, joined me there and taught at a local girl's school and just was an amazing experience together that then culminated to me moving back to the San Francisco Bay Area and joining a healthcare IT startup that ended up being kind of subsumed into a Fortune 15 company that was, you know, a little less fun. The startup side was super exciting. but And so then we had moved to Reno and I kind of took this idea of that what color is my parachute book and drew my flower of my ideal job and realized at the time I was volunteering, taking foster kids outside to do cross-country skiing up into the mountains and I just realized, you know, like, what if there was a way to do this for my job? And lo and behold, Sierra Nevada Journeys, which is an outdoor science education nonprofit that was founded locally, needed a CEO. And so that pathway led me to join that organization as their CEO, grow that for a decade. It was incredibly fun, got to expand a bunch. And I think that's how we met, which is phenomenal. And then at the end of the Last year, I was kind of feeling like I had accomplished what I set out to do at that organization and was ready to make a bigger impact. And just at that time, the longtime CEO of the Community Foundation decided to retire. And so by long time, like 21 years, and they needed a new CEO. And I've just joined 11 months ago, and it has been a phenomenal experience. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, they are lucky to have you, and so is the community. I mean, I just your background, I just, I'm just honored, just the size of your heart, your capacity to lead. What I saw you do at Serenade Journeys was nothing short of remarkable. I mean, our kids had this beautiful experience every year. It was always fun to show up at camp and see you there. And just, that was great for us, but to really see the broader mission of, of bringing technology education to underrepresented kids up at the Sky... A Grizzly Creek Ranch, yes. Yeah, Grizzly Creek Ranch, yeah. but then also the work you were doing at Sky Tavern. Oh, thank you. Like, yeah. you know, just giving just sort of exudes from you. It's like part of just your core essence, which is just amazing. And I love the fact that you're now finding a way to amplify that. 
Plus, I got to tell you, I mean, A, just thank you for your service, number one, to our country. I mean, I, I wasn't in the military, but my brother was, and I've gotten to really get close with a bunch of first responders and veterans and really recognize, you know, the sacrifice and the commitment to our country. So thank you for that. Thanks, Doug. You know, at the time, it was a chance to pay for college that just became so much more. So it's, yeah. yeah. Well, and you started a startup in arguably one of the hardest environments in the world. Like, how was that? You know, there wasn't a lot of competition. I guess that's a positive. It was amazing. Really an incredible experience. So we started a recruitment agency helping Afghans get linked up with companies like Coca-Cola Bottling that we're trying to set a Coca-Cola Bottling factory in Afghanistan or Serena Hotel starting a new hotel in Kabul, those types of things. Really helping to be that interface between Afghans that were hungry to work and companies that were hungry to get workforce. And so being that interface was really a, it was an amazing experience. It was phenomenal. Yeah. And at the time, my Wife joined me, which was really amazing. She taught at a local girl school. And so, uh, as you can probably imagine, a lot of the business climate in Afghanistan is very male-dominated. Sure. And my wife teaching at this girl school is very feminine-dominated. So we really got a, a slice of the entirety of the culture. I mean, well, certainly not the entirety, but a, yeah. a great slice of a big part of what living in kind of modern Kabul looked like at the time, which was just phenomenal. So, wow, what an experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's culminated. You know, we— of course, over the last couple of years, we've been really invested in getting folks that we worked with or knew closely in Afghanistan out of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan yeah. and ideally into the United States, although you know that doesn't have to be the outcome. They can go anywhere. They'll be successful. But we've got one of my key employees lives in Dallas now, and he's doing phenomenally. And then we're so excited that a young lady that my wife taught just started at the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and she got to live with my parents in Maryland while she got on her feet and get an apartment. And it is so neat. And to think back in 2006, when she was probably 16, her nine-year-old brother had to walk her to school. Oh, my gosh. Because she couldn't leave unaccompanied from her house and go to school. And so I have a nine-year-old. There's no way my nine-year-old's accompanying, you know, <laughs> yeah. chaperoning anyone. Unless it's on Fortnite, maybe. You know. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then this is really pretty amazing. But my wife, she was a high school teacher after the Navy. And so she had the students create posters of cities around the world in English as part of their, like, a capstone project. Yeah. And this young lady made a poster about Washington, D.C., and now she lives there. I mean, it oh is like just so incredible. So really a neat, just a wonderful culmination. So we're really proud of that. There's a, a lot left to do there, but these bright spots really feel amazing. Oh, so, what an inspirational story just to see that yeah. connection in the work. And I'm just so inspired. I, honestly, I'm just so excited for you to be here. And I'm curious. I've, you know, I've say work at Edon. I've been doing a lot of community work, but I don't really understand the Community Foundation. I have a cursory understanding. Yeah. So I'm just really excited to learn about what the Community Foundation does. So why don't you kind of... Give us the 411 on what a community foundation is and what it does in a community. Great, great. Well, there's over 900 community foundations across communities across our country. And so, and all of them in one flavor or another really work to increase charitable giving in their community. So nonprofits are about 3% of our economy. And so they require donations to move forward. And so community foundations really help to pave the way to make sure that nonprofits are resourced effectively and continue to grow and build. And so our specific community foundation of Northern Nevada, we serve the 13 counties of Northern Nevada, and we do four things. The first is we help make giving efficient. The reality is most of our wealth is not in our wallet or our checkbook. It's in our assets. And so we help people turn those assets into charitable giving so that they can 
give more and also give more effectively tax-wise so that they can, again, give more, which yeah. is exciting. So the second thing we do is we help individuals give more effectively. So, you know, an example I use is there's hundreds of nonprofits that do guide dogs for veterans. That's a place that I care deeply about. But how would an individual donor figure out which of these nonprofits is going to be the right partner to help make the good in the world they want to see through their financial contribution or even time, talent, treasure contribution? So we have a ton of local expertise that can help curate that and think about the type of gift that will help sustain this nonprofit or grow this nonprofit around what goals you have. So thinking about milestones, amounts, those types of things. So the third thing we do is we help build nonprofit capacity. So, you know, on one side, we're trying to grow charitable giving. On the other side, we want to make sure we're growing the capacity of our regional nonprofits so that they can accept increased charitable donations and put them to work really effectively in our community. And then the fourth thing we do is we help aggregate donors to solve seemingly intractable problems. A great example of that is what we're working on right now around affordable housing. That's a giant problem that one donor really can't make a needle-moving impact on, but our 270 donors tied with other charitable giving, paired with public dollars and some new funding structures and some mechanical structures, suddenly you can start paving the way for our community to really take on affordable housing in a really exciting way, particularly with city, state, local government support and and partnership. It's been really exciting. Yeah, wow. That uh, You do more than I had understood before. I really like that those four points. I mean, so let's kind of dive into each one of those. Like, what does it mean to be more efficient for donors? Like, how do you help the donor side of the world? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one of the – there's a lot of ways, but I think one of the most important things is thinking about tax consequences of giving and matching assets to your charitable goals. So, Just something as simple as if you give a gift of cash, that might impact your cash flow. If you give a gift of appreciated stock, that doesn't come out of your cash flow. It comes out of your assets or your balance sheet. And when you give a gift of appreciated stock, you don't have to pay capital gains tax on it. So so by making a charitable gift through using appreciated stock, you can actually save quite a bit on taxes and actually then potentially think about giving more or giving more generously, which can be really exciting. Oh, yeah. No, it's interesting. So, you know, I get what you're saying about that. Like, I wish I would have bought Tesla stock long, long ago. But if I had, yes. I now buy a lot of the public companies that come to town, but that's a whole other thing. I could have given some stock there, not taken the, the hit because it had a huge increase. That would have been more effective for me and more effective. So it gives you a broader way of thinking about Yeah, it's a great point. And then the second point is that our second opportunity, I think, is batching giving. So, you know, for folks maybe our age, like my wife and I were giving about $10,000 a year to charity. The reality is the standard deduction is $25,000. So for all that $10,000 of giving, which feels incredibly generous for us, we were still within the standard deduction. So although our charitable giving was tax deductible, it wasn't actually ever tax deducted from our taxes. Yeah, great distinction. Yeah, yeah, so we we used a strategy called batching where as opposed to giving $10,000 over three years, we used appreciated stock and gave a large gift in one year. So what that did is that got us above the standard deduction. Everything else in our life, like mortgage interest, et cetera, was suddenly deductible. And so we actually got the deduction, which was really exciting. And then now over the next two years or three years, we're going to give that money out slowly through our donor-advised fund. And then two years from now or something similar, we'll do it again so that 
Every one of our donations is actually tax deductible, and that's encouraged us to give more as a family, which is really in line with our values and does yeah, oh, that's does a, a lot of good. That's so, a brilliant strategy. I love yeah. that. So what I heard is, you know, look if you look at how you're giving, see if you can figure out a way to batch that at one time. You'll get a tax deduction, and you'll be able to deduct it on the front end because it'll be above the standard deduction. Yes. It sits in a fund, and then you give out basically what you were going to give that, you know, whatever that level is over that for each year and then do it all over again. I mean, and then what the net effect of that is increasing the amount of money that goes out into the community, which is what we're all looking for. Right. Well, that's right. that's really yeah, thoughtful. Yeah. You can save 30 to 40 cents on the dollar, which is really an amazing. It really increases your, I'm using air quotes here, purchasing power when you're thinking about giving locally to philanthropy. If you can, you know, harness an extra 30 cents on every dollar, that's really phenomenal. Well, what I like about that is you're sort of learning how to be a more effective philanthropist early on. I used to think that, you know, oh, I'd only really start to talk to a community foundation or think about philanthropy after I had an outsized success, right? Like I'm a, I've been a founder. I've had a bunch of stock that's not worth anything. But I'm like, oh, I'll think about that later. But it does sound like with these strategies, kind of, you know, deferred the batching, some of those other things, you could start working on that earlier in life. You don't have to wait for your outsized event to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the model used to be learn, earn, return, right? And I actually have a close friend that kind of has, you know, lives by that. And I, I love him to death, but maybe I'm too close to the millennial generation that that doesn't work for me, particularly in a community like Northern Nevada, where it is at the right size, where it's such a participatory democracy. I'm not going to wait until I'm 65 or 70 to start participating through philanthropy in our community. There's too many issues at stake, but there's also too many models I want to set for my kids. And there's too much I want to be involved in here to not be engaged in philanthropic giving locally today. Yeah, no, I t- I'm totally with you. I mean, I look, selfishly, I want to see some of the direct impact of what we're doing in the world, too. And so to be able to do it now versus later in life, I mean, I don't I don't really have aspirations to have an Irwin building anywhere, but maybe, you know, <laughs> you can put it on a hot spring somewhere. Maybe that would be good, the Irwin Center for Hot Water or whatever. I don't know. But the point is, like, you can be involved in that early on. And so it's just part of your life. I mean, one of the things about your children, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you think about this from a family perspective, but our kids use this Greenlight app, their allowance goes in and it takes a percentage for spending, savings, and giving. And they have a bunch of stuff online on how to give, but I'd much rather them get involved in giving in ways that impacts their local community. So maybe we do it with the schools, but I'd love to figure out a way to do that more efficiently through the community foundation. So how do you do that with your yeah, kids? Yeah, at our family, we do an end-of-year giving where each – we have two kids. Each one chooses a nonprofit that they want to invest in. They do a little bit of research. I mean, they're age-appropriate, sure. I'd say. But, you know, they do a little bit of research. They think about it. They make a pitch over dinner, and then they – get to give from our donor advice fund, including writing an email to our philanthropic advisor at the Community Foundation so that they're actually executing the trade, I guess, as you'd say, yeah, yeah. you know, sending it off and then they get a thank you letter. It's really a neat, positive thing. And frankly, it starts up some really interesting conversations around equity, et cetera. You know, like my kids go to public school, but they go to really nice public schools that I'm really proud of. It may be that that's not the right place for my kids to give. Somewhat self-serving if they, my son gave to the wrestling team and he's on the wrestling team or sure. something similar. So how do we think about giving so that other kids have a similar leg up to the ones that my kids kind of lucked out into in the birth lottery, I guess. So. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, they did they did hit the lottery by being part of your family, <laughs> but for sure. But I, but I take your broader point there. So part of that, so we were talking a little bit about the efficiency, but how do you think about it? And that's, we're kind of going into effectiveness. Like how do you make 
giving more effective for donors? Like, Yeah, it's a great question. So one, we have a lot of local knowledge. So what's wonderful, I've come from the nonprofit industry. Most of our employees have come from other nonprofits. We've got a lot of local engaged knowledge in nonprofits. The other thing we do is we really evaluate nonprofit executive directors, boards, models to really help think about matching assets and gifts with good you want to see in the world. You know, what we want to make sure is that, I guess very similar to a VC model, I'd say, is that you want to make sure organizations are appropriately capitalized, right? You don't want to have them be overcapitalized, probably less of a problem. but Not, not usually a problem in the startups, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. every now and then. There are a yeah. few. That was dot-com era. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of that. You don't want them to be immediately overcapitalized. And similarly, you don't want them to be undercapitalized for what they want to get at. And you want to think about long-term sustainability for nonprofits because we do have nonprofits that get – very big, very quickly, and then run into a cash crunch. And all of a sudden, they have to divest of different programs, or all of a sudden, they're not able to cover things like debt service or those types of things. I mean, they operate like any other business. And you really want to make sure that the capital that you're spending can be put forth effectively for the mission or the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so, our team works really closely with donors to think through that. And that could be setting up a new scholarship fund for a certain demographic or a certain type of approach. You know, we've got fascinating donor that was really given a big hand up as a young child of a single parent home where he was paid for, not paid, excuse me, he was given a scholarship full ride to whichever school he wanted to go to. He wants to make that happen, but very specifically to individuals from similar experiences. So he wants to make sure that that's available for, let's say, hundreds of other kids over the next two or three decades, which is magical. And so we can help put that structure in place, which is really amazing. Yeah. You must just be super, you were like overflowing with inspiration every day you show up at the office. I mean, it's I gotta really tell you. phenomenal. Yeah. It's a good job. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I love that. I mean, seeing someone having gone through that hardship, overcome that, and then be able to turn their pain into a gift to the world is profound. Like it's beautiful. I think that's bigger ramifications in my thinking, but I love, I love that example. What about, you know, you're talking about increasing the capacity for local nonprofits. So talk to me a little bit more about that. You know, that's, I think a really important component. So we focus on specifically executive directors quite often. So we run a nonprofit academy for 20 new executive directors a year. So there's now something like 120, 150 executive directors that have been through this training in the last six, seven years that are out there leading nonprofits. So this is focused on executive directors, leaders of nonprofits that have been in their job one to three years. We create a cohort of 20 leaders, and it's phenomenal that we'd start bringing through some very basics of nonprofit management, but then they direct us. They kind of design their curriculum. We bring in the experts to help address the areas they think they need help on, which is really helpful. And then that cohort exists in this community. So they've got 19 other people to reach out to as confidants. It can be very lonely at the top. They've got 19 potential partners. They've got 19 folks to think about fundraising strategy together, not to mention the fact that they can call us anytime. So really try to be a backdrop for these executive directors. So as they're growing these dynamic organizations, they're doing it in a really effective way, which has been awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, you guys are like philanthropic ecosystem builders, right? You got the whole stack. I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking, you're building an entire ecosystem of giving. You're helping support the donor creation. You're helping help the nonprofits. Obviously, you're helping the people that are receiving the services that you're touching kind of the whole area of the stack, like through education, through collaboration, through convening. I mean, you're, you really are an ecosystem builder. Oh, 
Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, that's amazing. The other neat thing we provide to nonprofits is an opportunity where asset management might not be their deep skill or taking complex assets can be very challenging. So like a regular nonprofit accepting a gift of a house or a business interest can be really challenging. And so by helping provide that layer of support for them through that process or legacy giving, those types of things, all these things are just they're complicated. And so not impossible, but certainly if you have a partner that can help you through that, that can be tremendously helpful. So yeah. we work, work through that with them and it's been really successful. Yeah, right. no, it, there's way more going on at the Community Foundation that I really understood. This one kind of makes sense to me, but we should type kind of the aggregating donors to solve bigger problems. We talked a little bit about that. What's a good example of that in our community? Yeah, so my favorite example is about a decade ago, we started thinking about impacts of community foundations organizationally. And for years, community foundations have been judged by the size of their assets. You know, it's almost like a who has the faster race car or something yeah. similar. You know, so we had hit over $100 million. And so that's really an exciting proof point. This thing's going to be here forever. Now let's start thinking about our impact. And so what we started to do is think about this initiatives process of convening the community to identify key needs where potentially a convener could step in and help bring together resources, bring together nonprofits, bring together individuals or communities affected by these nonprofits, and think about what might be missing in this landscape. And so our first initiative looked at youth experiencing homelessness and so brought together funders. We brought together nonprofits, government agencies working to help support this issue, youth experiencing homelessness, and started this series of convening and creating heat maps around what was working, what was challenging, what might be missing. And out of that was just incredibly neat. One thing that came out that's amazing is that a group of funders and founders came together and started the Eddie House, which yeah. now is an incredible tool locally here in Reno for youth experiencing homelessness. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, a, what a gem. God, I didn't realize you were involved in that. What a great example. And then secondarily, looking at the landscape of services that were out there, there was lots of organizations or entities providing one or two or three services. But really, if you're a young person experiencing homelessness, you need wraparound support. Like yeah. You don't have the ability to go to 14 different places to get the 14 things that you need to be successful. And so working to provide a landscape of what's where so that case managers or folks, when somebody does raise their hand and say, hey, I'm ready for some help, they can get a full suite of help, which is tremendously helpful. Yeah. You know, it, it just reminds me how important having an organization or community that has the 50,000 foot purview. I think thinking about the parallels of our lives, right? And when I think about the ecosystem, there's a lot of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. There's a lot of people that are doing great work to serve a particular type of founder. But I think we're in a unique position to be able to think about it from the 50,000 foot view. Like what does the entire community really need to move the needle entrepreneurship? Again, what I heard in your story was that's really the same role that the community foundation can do. You can bring together all the people on the ground, get to the understanding of the government and the founders and the, or the funders and bring that together to find more holistic solutions, which is, again, you're just an ecosystem. And not just, you're, like, it's the most valuable thing you could do is be an ecosystem builder, self-serving, like said, of <laughs> course. the ecosystem builder. I love it. Well, you know, I've got a good roadmap to borrow ideas from and bounce ideas off of. So I really appreciate that. But it's not dissimilar to what they're doing with Built for Zero, right? I mean, there's all these people that touch the person in need along the way, but they, you know, there's not a lot of handoff in terms of communication. And so like having that 50,000 foot purview allows you to see things from a different perspective that you might not if you're in the trenches. And then, so I really see the value of that. And I think it's proof point in Eddie House, which has been a glowing success. In the yeah. Community. Well, and, you know, moving 
back up the upstream, and that also allows you to think about moving upstream to think about diversionary issues and things like that, where is there some investments we can make earlier so that we're not addressing a problem today, essentially. So that can be really exciting, too, to kind of take a bigger, you know, start thinking about precursors earlier and earlier. What's neat is this community has that kind of open-mindedness and that kind of close connections and linkages where you can start bringing people together and start thinking earlier and earlier about problems, which is phenomenal. Yeah, it's I mean, really inspirational, I think. Yeah. Totally. The fact that we're in a community where it's like we're one degree of separation from all these people. So for you to be able to recognize a problem and bring all those people to bear to create a solution is really powerful. I got to imagine it's super rewarding as well. It is. And to see the generosity, heart, and passion of the folks that are involved in these issues is just, it's magical. It sounds like there's, you do some education component, but there's so many different components to this. I mean, I'm thinking about my mother's aging and what do we do with that? Like, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my other entrepreneurs. Like, how do you get more of the education out in the world just so they even know that this exists? Like, how are you getting the word out? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. I think that's something we're going into strategic planning this year. And so I'm hearing that the kind of undertones of that leading into strategic planning from my board, certainly, because yeah. I think that that's a increased need as, you know, as wealth moves into our community and we're in a historically large time of wealth transfer between generations. Yeah. How do you start the education process so that you make sure that these things are well-known, carried forward, and executed on so that that's really going to be the key to growing philanthropy in our community? We do have a family estate planning series that has been incredibly exciting. It's 100 families in the fall and the spring thinking about legacy giving, which is giving after you pass away, essentially. And so we work with those families to help think through and create estate plans that also include charitable giving so that... As folks recognize the incredible wealth that they've experienced, and by wealth, I mean like holistic wealth that they've experienced, like life, freedom, love, you know, all these wonderful things in life that they've experienced through living in this community that they can then think about ways to give back with assets that they may not need for their own life or for the life of their heirs. Yeah. Look, I think the more you can do on that, the better. I mean, I know this has been a hot topic in the entrepreneurial organization. I, I went to a seminar, gosh, it was almost a decade ago, this family out of Utah, a uh, very successful family. I think they had seven kids. And, you know, the whole topic was like, how do you, basically, how do you not screw up your kids with your money? Like, this is the short version. And their basic take was, don't give your kids any wealth at the end. Now, this is kind of, you know, somewhat controversial. But then when you actually got into what they were saying is, no, we helped our kids through college and get their first home and we were there for them. But fundamentally, the bulk of our wealth is going to go into a foundation and each one of the kids will become a trustee and they get to direct non, you know, their philanthropic projects through that. And I, I never forgot that. That was such a brilliant idea. I love that. And so it feels like, you know, more of that would be good in the world. I mean, I feel very fortunate to be able to get exposed to that. But Getting that message out would be... It's such a valuable lesson to teach kids, and I feel really fortunate that my parents really pushed that in me as like living for others is really a whole life includes living for others. And so it's uh, I think that's a really special thing to be able to start inculcating our kids early, particularly in a community like this where you can actually see the benefits of your of your efforts. I mean, that's amazing. Well, that's, I guess that's one of the reasons, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before, but just why wait to give? Like, yeah. let's give now. Do you help in a situation where, you know, I've got an aging mother. I mean, she's not, she'll probably not be happy that I said that on the air. <laughs> but, you know, she's just lost her husband and we'll be thinking about 
these kind of plans? I mean, I'm assuming you help families, even if they're not uber wealthy, figuring out how to do the type of planning that you're talking about. Because I guess if yeah. you're uber wealthy, you can put it in your own foundation. But here, it's for more modest. Right. Well, you know, I mean, typically about 80% of the people that come to us come through a professional advisor of some sort, whether that be an estate planning attorney or a CPA or a financial advisor. They're starting to think about long-term plans. And part of that is an interest in leaving a legacy in the world that carries on their beliefs and their thoughts and their their care for others in their community. And so those are fantastic people to talk with for us because we can help them think through a plan that can actually help protect their legacy in this local community. And so what that might look like is the assets that you don't think you need to turn to give to your children, you know, like thinking about not, I think you said ruining your kids with money, uh, (laughs) the assets above that, what will they do? And I think folks get really nervous about that because they realize they may not see the impact of that. And they really don't want to get it wrong because they won't be there to change course or to follow up on it. The wonderful thing about a community foundation is that we are there to follow up on it. And we are there to make sure that that investment goes in the right way. We might set up milestones. We might set up requirements. We might spend it over 10 years so that, let's say, nonprofits, just like any other companies, they might go through radical changes, et cetera, so that those assets are provided over the period of time to the good you want to see in the world, not necessarily the specific nonprofit if it's taken a jig or a jag. Yeah, what a great point. I hadn't considered that, of course. You know, like I'm committed to clean energy or something or, or, you know, homelessness. And instead of putting it into one nonprofit that will have, may have a long life, it may not, put in the foundation, provide the goals, and then you help manage that. It's almost like, I mean, in a way, in that context, you're almost like a mutual fund manager. So if I wanted to buy a mutual fund on social responsibility, you guys kind of manage that. You nailed it. I mean, we consider, I mean, I often consider us or use the metaphor of a financial advisor, but around philanthropic giving. So if you're using a professional advisor around navigating markets or thinking about retirement or those types of things, I think it's quite helpful to use a philanthropic advisor to think through philanthropic giving because it is a new world, right? And you can, many people like to self-manage things. And so they might say, I'm going to get super smart on philanthropic giving, but I'd say the majority of people don't want to take that time to get super smart on philanthropic giving. And so we want to preserve the fun and the joy and the impact without all the back end, essentially. That's something we can take care of and help maximize it for you. Yeah, it was such a great opportunity. I think at at some point we've got to get you connected more with the entrepreneurial community because I think that maybe not a lot of people, but I was always thinking about this in terms of like, well, I'll give when I have a big exit. But there's a lot of very successful companies here in the entrepreneurial community that I think would be interesting. I mean, I, there was a program in Colorado, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was something like 1% for Colorado. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the companies, when they first started, when 1% meant nothing to them, they put it into this fund. And now that's grown over time, which I think has been beautiful. And it gives back to support entrepreneurship, which is great. It's something I care about. Another model that I saw that was a really good friend of mine, Shock's Philanthropy, he's a patent attorney in the Bay Area. He worked with a lot of his clients. They all gave 1%, and they're all Bay Area tech companies. Well, they started having exits. Wow. And the model was that even if you gave a percentage of your company, regardless of what happened, you would get a percentage of that exit, and then you would be able to give that. So you're learning how to be a philanthropist early, which I love that. Wow. Really unique model, really like where that's going. And I wonder if there, you know, there's just something in there where if we can tap into that entrepreneurial energy early on and then help them learn how to be philanthropists, that just brings more philanthropists in the world at an earlier time. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, and having the conversation before your exit event is incredibly helpful because think about giving cash. You know, let's say you sell your company and you have a lot of cash. Giving cash is really effective. But if you are ahead of that and let's say give a portion of your company to charity before the exit, that's incredibly valuable because then there might be 40 cents on the dollar that you save in taxes, which is amazing because think if you could give as opposed to $1, $1.40, there's not many investment opportunities where you can suddenly give that much more. Yeah. It's really phenomenal. Would you rather give it to the federal government or would right. you rather give it to your local community and something you care about? It's it, pretty it, much it, that simple, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it really appeals to, I think, that Nevadan ideal of local control and yeah. like, you know, personal control, those types of things. Yeah. yeah. Kind of that libertarian ethos. I yes. lo- I, that's one of the things I love about here. We're, we're such a unique blend of fun people in this community. I don't think. Indeed. So... Talk to me a little bit about, we've been talking about founders and individuals and donors. What about the corporates? I mean, corporates seem like they are doing more of this. And I don't know if that's just for their image or like what's going on in the corporate world and corporate philanthropy. I mean, so where I see is that corporate philanthropy is increasing a lot. And the reason for that is I think there's increased competition on the marketing side. There's also a tremendously increased competition for workforce, whether that be retention or recruitment. And I think really smart companies are starting to think about corporate philanthropy as a model to help underpin other strategic goals. And where particularly our younger generations of employees, they want to see a company that's phenomenally successful, but they also want to understand the why behind the company, why it's important, what the impact it's making beyond just whatever product or service they give and so or they create. And so we see a tremendous increase in corporate philanthropy as a way to harness some of that energy and really think about the values of the company, the brand of the company, and how that aligns to giving back to, let's say, the local community or a cause or something similar. And that can take the form of sometimes you think of cause marketing can be uh, really helpful, or you can think about philanthropy or a focus for the company as a way to think about recruitment. All those things kind of blend together to think about what is the ethos of this organization and why is it important to get on board either as a customer or as an employee. Yeah. I got to tell you, you got to love the millennials for this. They gave this to us. You know, in my entrepreneurial circles, we always like to make fun of the millennials, but I think they've they got a secret. They kind of figured it out. And we'll, we'll pick on Gen Z for a while next. But yeah, let's tease that apart a little bit. So talk to me about cause marketing. Like I've never really heard about that before. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about this company clothesline that I got to meet through the oh, generator yeah. last year. Really neat group. I share a Marine Corps background with one of the founders, which was kind of a yeah, neat, Daniel. Neat, yeah, Great neat, guy. neat thing to find. And so they're creating a company that links up people that have the capacity to do laundry with people that need laundry to get done. And essentially, it's an app that I'll let them describe it better than I could, but allows people to then come pick up that laundry. They have an incredible platform to what they think is create a Guinness Book of World Record opportunity of the most charitable giving of closed drives oh, wow. you know, in the country. And so what a neat opportunity to go into new regions and think about creating closed drives and emptying out closets of clothes that can be donated and then turned into positives for people that are really struggling. And so this is a thing where they came to us and talked to us about it, and we connected them to the Big Brothers, Big Sisters locally, which is the organization that runs tons of those donation boxes that you've seen in Walmart parking lots or Best Buy parking lots you know, across yeah, yeah. the region. And so just that simple connection has created this partnership where they're trying to go for a Guinness Book of World Records as they roll out in the state of Nevada, which is just wow, really a neat thing where that's not a community foundation being a service, but by connecting like-minded individuals 
that have a really similar business opportunity or philanthropic opportunity, we can really make some hay there, which is exciting. Totally. Well, and again, just I'm going to beat this to death, but one of the key attributes of being an ecosystem builder is being a connector. So, I mean, you're hitting all of them, right? I have the four C's. You've hit connector. You're a convener, right? You're building all these people together. You're communicating, right? You're telling the whole story and you're catalyzing, like you're creating all these new things. So like you are officially, I'm anointing hey. you as the ecosystem builder. <laughs> Excellent. Does that come with a hat or something? I got to like. Uh... <laughs> I'll come up with a pin, maybe a challenge Perfect. coin. You, oh, need, you guys like, like challenge coins, right? <laughs> I like challenge coins until I have to carry them around and then I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> well, with how many great things you're doing in the world, I've got like four challenge coins. I'm not going to walk around with all four of them. Like, that's a lot. <laughs> That's funny. So what are other ways of thinking about corporate philanthropy? Obviously, I, you were talking about as a young employee or a new employee, hey, I want to work someplace that I believe in, right? Yeah. I, again, I'll pick on these folks just because I can. Like, I don't think everybody wakes up every day and says, hey, I want to go do payday lending. You know, maybe they do. I don't feel great about payday lending personally. But people want to work for Patagonia because they have a broader mission. And so this is kind of fits into that ethos. Well, I guarantee Patagonia very rarely has job openings that don't get filled, right? I mean, right. I guess an example locally, Duraflex is the world's largest diving board manufacturer right here in Sparks, which mm -hmm. is really incredible. Their founder is passionate or, was, excuse me, was very passionate about the diving board community and making sure that diving was accessible for kids all across the country and now all across the world. And, you know, they have a really phenomenal structure now through the Community Foundation where the majority of their profits go to enhancing the sport of diving across the world, which is wow. so incredible, right? You yeah. think about, and you probably know this company because every diving board you've likely been on has been a Duraflex board. They've got a patent on that kind of teal color. And so oh, yeah. when you picture a diving board, you only picture that color, I'm sure. And, I've you know, slid off a few of those. There we go. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so what an amazing story from the executive team all the way down to like the painter of the diving boards that they know that the reason they exist is to create diving across the world and, and they actually get to see the impact of that. They've got several Olympic divers on their foundation board and it's just a phenomenal organization that is committed. They've really aligned their values with what they do, which yeah. is just phenomenal. I'm a huge fan of having core values, right? I mean, core values in our organization, in our team, I mean, they've become the filters for all of our decision-making. I love linking your core values through your giving. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, it's it's a way you're showing up in the world, but like, how do you align your values with giving? That's an interesting, hmm, I'll have to think more about that. That's really exciting. So you do some other things too, right? I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before I thought was really fascinating is I've been sort of toying with this idea of an ecosystem fund. Like, I really want to create a legacy. I really want to help up-and-coming ecosystem builders. But it's one thing to just, hey, say, okay, great. You're like, I've anointed you to ecosystem builder. Yeah, great. You know, like, <laughs> so what, Doug? But to be able to provide them with a reoccurring source of revenue or funding where they can take that to the community they believe in, whether that is in women who code or if it's underrepresented communities or just startup weekend. But, you know, I had originally thought, hey, maybe I need to create my own nonprofit. But in talking with you, it sounds like there's another way to go about that. So talk to me about like, what's an alternative to a nonprofit, especially in the early stage when you're thinking about something? Yeah, yeah. You know, we talk to a lot of, I guess, early stage nonprofit entrepreneurs that have a ton of passion, ton of heart, and they want to go solve a problem. And Typically, we'll talk through it with them, and sometimes starting a nonprofit is the right thing. I mean, every nonprofit I've led had to be founded by someone, right? So yeah. certainly not anti-nonprofit entrepreneurship. And starting a nonprofit can be a lot, right? There's a lot of administration to get started. As soon as you get 
big enough to really make a big impact, you need a independent board. And so that independent board can decide that whatever that ideal is, maybe they'll take it in a different direction, those types of things. And so oftentimes we'll counsel a or counsel will provide advice to a interested nonprofit entrepreneur to say, let's do two things. One, maybe think about setting up a charitable fund as opposed to a nonprofit to get started, particularly if your outcome is to fund activities. So that can be really helpful thinking through. The second thing we often encourage them to think through is not only the like this competitive and cooperative landscape so that their entrepreneurship, that's key, right? Thinking through the competitive landscape. Similarly with needs and issues within our community, like let us introduce you to some of the other nonprofits that might be doing some of that work so you no. can think through, should this be a program at another nonprofit? Should this be you investing into another nonprofit that's already doing this work and maybe providing some gasoline for that engine? Yeah. Yeah. Or should this is this a hole in the market that really needs a nonprofit? Which all those are options, but I think thinking through that is really important before jumping off. I got to tell you, I love that competitive versus collaborative landscape. What a concept that makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, as an entrepreneur, you've got to look at where your competitors are. But in the nonprofit world, like, where are the people that are trying to do the same thing? And in the entrepreneurial world, most people decide, hey, I'm going to do it better. I'm sure that maybe is true in social entrepreneurship as well. But also, if you really get aligned around what's the impact we're trying to make, if you really are true to that, then maybe the better way to do that is to support something that already exists or collaborate with those folks and create a new thing. I mean, that, I love that collaborative landscape. I'm totally taking that. Yeah. I mean, it's really important and particularly because we're coming into a time period, I think, where charitable giving is going to be more constrained because, you know, we don't have these federal funds that are flowing through state, regional, local government agencies like that's going to dry up. And so this idea of like we've been pretty fat and happy right now, but if, yeah. if that pie starts to constrict a little bit and at the same time wages keep going up, we're going to have to find ways to work together and maximize yeah. what we have in place vice creating new, I think that can be really challenging. Yeah, it does feel like the helicopter cash is coming down a little slower than it used to. (laughs) You nailed it. What an interesting time. Although I got to say, I've been doing nonprofit work for almost 11 years now. Gosh, I can't believe it. And it's been the first time in the whole history of that where we're able to like take these things that we knew we needed to do, dust them off the shelf and be like, we actually have funding to do this and we can try it and get it, which has been Remarkable. I mean, I, I understand we it doesn't work like that forever, but it's been a really fun period. It's been amazing, right? We've been capacity constrained in some instances, vice cash constrained, which yeah. is totally revolutionary, right? So, but there will be a reversion to the mean. And so thinking through what happens in three years when that switch flips and we're no longer, or maybe we are capacity constrained and cash constrained, how do we make sure the things we're building today survive for decades to come? Yeah, totally. But one of the things I think is great is there's a lot of things that you got to throw against a wall to see if they stuck. And that feels like a very innovative period, right? When you're competing with things that are entrenched and legacy and all that, that's hard to, and they still need to exist, but like, how do you create a lot of new upstart ideas? There's been a lot of that. And we're trying a lot of things, especially around DEI, especially in the ecosystem. This is a big issue and it's, it takes real work and it takes different capital and different partnerships. And a lot of the federal funding has been structured that way, which is great because it forces you to think more creatively about how to solve problems that you might otherwise have been like, it's not necessarily the core problem. And so it's been really interesting to watch that flow through. So interesting times. So you guys do so much. I mean, you're like in the ecosystem. Are there things that you do that we haven't talked about? 
Well, let's, let's think. So, I mean, I think one of the neatest things we're doing right now is we have established the first community housing land trust in the state. Oh, so housing land trust exists across the United States as a vehicle to think about a entity that can take and hold land that's charitably given or given by government agencies to focus on affordable housing or affordable home ownership. And so that's a really neat thing that the Community Foundation, essentially the at the time, I think 2016 or 2017, the city of Reno was looking for someone to start a housing land trust. And the Community Foundation raised our hand because that's the kind of thing we do is build new tools and structures in the community. And so it's been incredibly exciting to get into this concept of having a housing land trust, using this vehicle to help jumpstart affordable housing. And so we're now partnered with, of course, City of Reno, Washoe County, the state, Nevada Division of Housing. So it's just been a lot of exciting opportunities with that. And ultimately, you know, that similar to the other tools we build, that will be an independent tool that can be used for the community and grow and continue to catalyze new opportunities. And so that's been really exciting. And so that's where a lot of our focus is today, right now, and just kind of capitalizing on this funding heavy environment so we can create some of these structures so that this structure can live on for the community. Well, you know what I love about what you're talking about is those are large, not intractable problems, but they're really large, complicated problems. I mean, you know, we were talking about the need for housing and affordable housing seven or eight years ago. One of my favorite slides that Mike ever presented was this, like, picture of a tsunami. And everybody everybody thinks there's free fish, but there's just wave coming because it was back. We had all these jobs coming, but the land prices were depressed. And no one thought at all that we'd be where we are today. And yet he predicted it seven, eight years ago. And it's largely been unaddressed. I mean, we're, there's a lot of like individual things that are coming together, but it's a complicated problem. So the fact that you're putting your hat into the ring now and hopefully you can use some of the same magic you did to bring Eddie House around this would be great. Yeah. Well, I will say it's it's a bigger challenge than even the Community Foundation is putting our shoulder to the wheel, but there's tons of great organizations Absolutely. pushing forward on that. But you're right. It is a big, big problem. And so thinking about Nevada Division of Housing got $500 million of ARPA funding to put to work. And they, I think they estimated that was about two years of catch up or something. So when $500 million is two years of catch up, there's a lot to do. Yeah. I think that was one of those things that was sort of shocking. You know, we were talking with the superintendent the other day and just recognizing that the money that's going to be flowing through and, you know, the district really needs it. It sounds like a big number, but it's actually catch up dollars. And that it's like the first step towards actually catching up. And even though it sounds big, it's actually just the first step. And so some of these big problems, it's it's like deferred maintenance, right? We have all this deferred maintenance on our community that we're just now being able to barely step into. And it's great to kind of put a band-aid on it, but then also we have to figure out how do we solve these problems long-term. Yeah, and deferred maintenance, you know, while the community is growing is a complicated problem, right? So it's not like you get to press pause and catch up. It's like, okay, we got to catch up and build services for all these new folks that are coming in. So it's a complicated problem. Yeah. What are some of the challenges facing the Community Foundation? Do you have any things that you're concerned about? I mean, you've been there about a year. There's an operational, you've restructured your team. You've got it, you're on a solid footing. Like, what are are some of the challenges facing you or other community foundations? Right, Like, broadly, I don't know what the challenges are. We want to make sure that we have the capacity to grow with the need of this community. So I think we've got kind of four pressures on the Community Foundation. We've got a lot of wealth moving into the community and being created here. We've got a lot of wealth transfer from kind of 
old generations, you know, we've got one of the largest generations retiring, starting to think about legacy giving. So there's a giant generational wealth transfer happening. We've also got nonprofits that are really growing in their capacity. So I think it's every nonprofit's not just run by somebody's nephew now. It's like we've got a really robust nonprofit management structure, board members, et cetera. And then the fourth pressure is that population is growing faster than, let's say, access to healthcare, access to housing, those mm-hmm. types of things, and not to mention an inflationary environment. So you've yeah. got kind of growing need, you've got a lot of wealth coming into the community, and you've got increased capacity of the nonprofits. Like all four of those are pushing on the community foundation to force us to grow. And so yeah. the first thing that really my board charged me to do is to let's get us on a great footing so that we can grow at the pace that our community needs and deserves so that we can really do our work of increasing philanthropy and putting those dollars to work really effectively in the community. So that's been about the last 11 months or so of kind of building that footing of rapid growth. I mean, that's not to say we haven't grown rapidly already, right? So there's been the kind of capitalizing on what's happened before and now being prepared to do almost like a hyper growth opportunity while making sure that we're doing this in a way that respects the wishes of donors, treats donors like they need to be treated as these generous individuals trying to give to nonprofits, make sure nonprofits feel respected and valued and are getting the gasoline they need for their engines to push forward, you know, making sure this whole ecosystem is kind of moving together effectively. And so when I first joined the organization, I asked for about 18 months to put us onto this footing of growth. And we're at month 11 and we've got a great team and we've got a great board and we've got a great set of really generous donors. And so we're right at that precipice or, or cusp, I guess I'll call it, not a precipice, but a cusp where we're ready to now grow with the speed of the growth of the community, which wow. is just really exciting. Uh, and I'm sure with your leadership, I mean, just seeing what you've done in your previous life, I'm sure you've righted the ship and you're ready to take advantage. I mean, it's interesting to hear, I, I get that it's a pressure, it's not a challenge. Like when you said there's all this wealth coming to the community is like a challenge. I'm like, huh, no startup ever said, gosh, having all this money coming into my company is actually a challenge. But I get <laughs> in this context, it's an issue, right? Like you want to manage capacity. You've got to be able to service people correctly. I mean, you're just like any other organization. You have to be able to service all those different people and they all have different needs. And Service, educate, attract. Yeah. You know, we need to be present in this community so folks know and, hey, I'm thinking about charitable gift planning. Hey, come to the Community Foundation. Let's talk through it. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just, gosh, Eaton, it's just been a real pleasure to have you on the show and to learn more about it. I'm, I mean, I'm like, I'm leaving inspired. I'm just really excited about the work you're doing and where we're going as a community. And it feels like when you got into that position, I thought, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I know it's going to be great. And so I just appreciate your commitment to our community and your leadership. And yeah, I'm just excited to see what comes next. I love it. Well, from one recently anointed ecosystem builder to a longtime ecosystem builder, I'm just really proud to have you anoint me and to have me on this podcast. It's just really amazing. And watching you work is a lot of fun. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Eaton. Well, we'll have to do it again when we come up for some next milestone or something. We'll have you come on and we'll, we'll talk more about it. Plus, I got a couple ideas for you on how we can maybe do take some of the tools that we've learned in the entrepreneurial ecosystem and apply that to the philanthropic ecosystem. I'd love it. That's great. Awesome. Well, have a good one. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Doug. <laughs>